the 19th century Danish philosopher, theologian, and poet Soren Kierkegaard wrote this in his book, Attack Upon Christendom. Christianity is the profoundest wound that can be inflicted upon us, calculated on the most dreadful scale to collide with everything. It's a provocative statement. It's calibrated for dramatic effect, undoubtedly, and we could even argue in the other direction that Christianity heals. Jesus was wounded for us that we might be healed. And that would be true. But do you grasp what Kierkegaard means? Embracing the gospel, becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, collides with everything. There is no closet in our hearts where we can safely store away certain thoughts about our own ideas, our own way. I'm lost. There's no closet in our hearts where we can safely store away certain thoughts from the authority of our Lord. There can be no password-protected file in our souls where we make plans and we feed passions independently of Jesus' Lordship. The call to follow Jesus Christ severs the root of our damning independence. It is calibrated to infuse Jesus' rule over every atom of our naturally self-centered and self-serving hearts. Jesus' sovereign will and lordship thus collides with everything. And by God's grace, we are learning to love it that way. It is an incomparable wound to turn over our self-rule to Christ. It's an incomparable wound, but we are learning that this wound heals. It enriches, it transforms, and it wholly satisfies. It collides with everything for our good and for His glory. There's a massive... As I mentioned last week, a massive cultural and temporal gap that exists between us in the last two chapters of the book of Ezra. But it is this theme which reverberates from these chapters and reaches us as the followers of the risen Savior today. Knowing Christ, true Christianity collides with everything. It makes a demand upon our life that is at the same time healing as it is wounding. And so we return to Ezra in chapter 10 today. We remember, I can get this slide right, I think it's there. There we go. We remember in 538 B.C. the Persian king Cyrus permits the exiled Israelites to return to the promised land. 50,000 Israelites returned from Babylonia, coming back to the promised land and settling, particularly centering their settlement in Jerusalem. That's Ezra chapters 1 through 6. 
In 458 BC, a second wave of exiles returns to the land under the leadership of the biblical scholar and teacher Ezra the scribe. That's Ezra chapter 7 through 10. So after the four-month journey from Babylonia to the promised land, Ezra began his ministry of teaching God's word to God's people. He begins to share with them what that word says, and the teaching uncovered a vein of hidden idolatry that threatened to destroy Israel. Something such as this passage here in Exodus 34. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. There's reasons for that. Their iniquity had grown to the place of self-destruction to themselves and to everyone around them. They had gone so far that they were sacrificing their babies in the fire to their gods. It was time for them to be removed. And you're going to come into that land, God says, so take care. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. That is the, the false gods that they were worshiping. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He is jealous for our holiness. He is jealous for our prosperity. He is jealous for our goodness in Him. And so all other false gods he knows will destroy us. And so he wants them to be nowhere near these gods. Lest you make a covenant. Notice it again, the emphasis. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods, when they prostitute themselves to their gods in disobedience to me, and they sacrifice to their gods. And you are invited to eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. This is what you must avoid. Now, Ezra's teaching the law. He's revealing passages such as this to the people in Israel. We stress again, this is not racism as our culture would define it but what is going on on the narrow scale what is happening is in a world in which ethnicity was hardwired to religion God knew that if Israel intermarried with pagans inhabiting the land and that's part of the issue here as they married pagans inhabiting the land Israel would lose the saving faith found in Yahweh alone salvation would be lost eventually but on a broader scale, as we noted last week, the promised Messiah sent to crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15, would be identified in his mission to deliver his people, would be identified through certain bloodlines. God approved interracial marriage. Even under the Old Covenant. When people of diverse ethnicities identified with God's people as followers of Yahweh, the one true and living God, there was no problem with that kind of marriage. 
but intermarriage with pagans on a culture-wide basis in the promised land would extinguish the light of God's covenant people. And that's the agenda that's going on here, which is so different from our day. We must understand that and not read in the wrong ideas. Intermarriage, entering covenant with the people of the land through marriage would extinguish the line of Messiah. That line was to pass and did pass through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and through Jacob's sons, Judah, and down to King David, whose psalm we read earlier today. This son, Messiah, would be the greater son of King David. All of that would be lost if this project was not addressed. The relationship between the Israelites in the promised land and the relationship of those Israelites to the inhabitants through marriage, through that covenant. Merging with the pagans of the land through intermarriage was nothing less than infidelity to God. Does that make sense? Not interracial marriage as such, but interracial marriage in this setting was infidelity to God and was an assault upon the messianic line. And so we read in chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2, the problem. It's identified for us here in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Hear the echoes of Exodus 34. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. For they, how have they not separated themselves? How have they not remained distinctively God's people? Here it is, verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So verse 1, it is their abominations, and it is verse 2, this faithfulness on Israel's part that is at issue in this interracial marriage. Not interracial marriage as such, but this particular challenge. They have been unfaithful to God. Ezra pours out his heart in repentant prayer, interceding for God's people. Verses 6 and following down through verse 15. And we pick up his prayer as it crescendos at verse 13. He acknowledges all that God has done for Israel to bring her back to the land, to bless her. And he says, verse 13, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt. What's he talking about? That's the Babylonian captivity. That's the Assyrian captivity. There has been discipline brought down upon us for our unfaithfulness to you. Seeing that you, our God, verse 13, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. We've come back to the promised land. You've given us a remnant to be established here again. You've done this wonderful thing. Verse 13, shall we then in light of this break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. We see Ezra's grief in light of Israel's infidelity to God. As we come then to chapter 10, we see the people's response to Ezra. And we just touched on this last week because we didn't want to just leave it there at the end of his prayer. But how did they respond? Notice chapter 10 and verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. This is not wild-eyed fanaticism on Ezra's part. God's Spirit brings deep conviction on a growing number of Israelites. The people begin to arrive in Jerusalem and they too, hearing of Ezra's prayer and seeing his fasting and his mourning, they join in and say, yes, we have violated your truth. There's a genuine repentance that takes place here. Out of this group, a little known character emerges and initiates sweeping reform. Verse 2 And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Note that phrase, broken faith. One word in the Hebrew text, it is found again down in verse 6, where it is translated faithlessness. And it is found again in verse 10, where we have again the translation broken faith. This is the theme of the chapter in many respects. On the negative side of it, they have broken faith with God. This word was sometimes used in cases of adultery, to break faith or to break covenant with God. So by covenanting to marry unbelieving pagans, by placing the covenant of marriage over their covenant with God, Israel was committing infidelity. Shechaniah acknowledges this confesses this reality. Men and families among God's people had chosen to rely on their own wisdom. Why had they entered into these marriages? It's not given, the reasons are not given to us directly here. But intermarriage with pagans became for them the answer. Whatever question was being asked, this was the answer. This was the satisfying, the smart, the socially acceptable, the security-assuring answer. This is how you get along in the land. By marrying these people. Entering into contract with them. Again, we have to remember the distance between us and them. Marriages were arranged. They were largely contractual. Romance came after the wedding. Not before. There were rare differences. I would not question that. 
but that was generally the approach. Romantic feelings were for marriage, not before marriage. And so in that setting, there were contracts that were made with objective, logical goals in mind. This was the answer for stability in the land, some had thought. But as the light of God's Word exposed their sinful motivations, it collided with their reasoning. They realized these marriages were an assault on God's holy name. But Shechaniah knew more than just the curse of God's law. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 2. This is what we've done. We have broken faith with God, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. There is hope. Ralph Davis writes on this passage, hope is often hard hope. The great line, hope is often hard hope. So it is here in Ezra 10. Shechaniah proposes the hard work of conforming life to God's will. This is pretty horrifying. This is tough. But he says, therefore, and the word therefore, verse 3, is the same word as but, the phrase before. But there is hope, therefore. And now, there's hope. And now, let us, verse 3, make a covenant with our God. This is hard to read. To put away all these wives and their children. According to the counsel of my Lord, probably referring there to Ezra's counsel, the text could be read, as you see the marginal note, to the Lord, God's counsel. But according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. That is, in keeping with God's word, let us conform our lives to that word by sending these wives and their children back to their clans, back to their pagan clans, and away from the people of God. Now, we have to understand that divorce in our day has become about as easy as has ever been the case in the history of humanity. But in that setting, breaking contract, the contract of marriage, had massive negative implications. There were negative social implications, as we can imagine. There was, first of all, would be great shame placed upon these women. Rumors would begin as to why they were all being sent away, and certainly the fact that it's the whole culture, all of the Israelites doing this would have aided in that, but there would have been great shame placed upon them in the shame-based culture of that day. It would be very probable that these women would never marry again. They would be viewed in their culture as soiled goods and to live with their father's families for the rest of their days. We can hardly begin to imagine what it would be like to send children away. That messed with inheritance rights to say nothing about what happened in your heart. There were negative economic implications because there were positive economic implications for entering into these kinds of covenants. 
That means that when you break that covenant, there are negative consequences economically. There were negative effects certainly on Israel's image in the land to say nothing more of the consequences of families who are being torn apart. Israel is in this spot in a terrible position. It would take courage and resolve to unravel this mess they had brought upon their own heads. And so Shechaniah exhorts Ezra, calling him to bold action in verse 4. It makes sense if you put yourself in the scene. Arise, for it is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. We find Ezra's response in verses 5 and 6. Initially, first he presses Israel to take an oath. Then, verse 5, Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. That is, he presses them to dissolve these marriages. Divorce, is it God's pleasure? Is God in this? Think of the words of Malachi. It can be variously translated, but in the lightest way of saying it, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Do not be faithless by divorcing. This is his word. Taken with a variant reading, some translations say God hates divorce. But he does, and that's clear in this passage, however it's translated. The New Testament also speaks of divorce as sin, generically understood that way. Having said that, I do not believe that divorce is the lesser of two evils here in Ezra 10. I do not believe God's people were breaking God's law a little bit so that they could avoid doing something more wrong. While divorce is not God's design, this passage does not permit us to absolutize divorce as a sin in all cases at all times. In this case, I don't believe Ezra is leading Israel into a little sin. I think he's leading Israel to do what is right, as hard as it is. Yes, Israel was in this situation because of her sin. But divorcing their pagan wives as a community in the promised land was an act of faithfulness to God given these circumstances. Now we would be foolish to conclude that this situation could ever be duplicated today. It cannot be. So if there's any thought here that there is freedom being given to us to check out the circumstances and divorce wisely, that's not what we're to gain from this passage. You cannot duplicate this in our day. We're not Israel. We're not under the old covenant. We're not living in the promised land. We're not relating in this way to pagans. The infidelity that put Israel in this position is what is applicable to us today. But having said all of that about this setting, and it's a hard one, 
We see Ezra secondly responds by fasting, verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. His chambers, small apartments were attached to the temple, and Ezra finds refuge in one of those and fasts and prays and mourns for Israel's spiritual health. A proclamation then, in verse 7, rallies Israel. A proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. In verse 8, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. But this time, all Israelites lived within a 50-mile radius of Jerusalem, most of them living closer, so this is something that could have been accomplished in that day. It wasn't an easy task, but it was doable. Don't show up and you are excommunicated from the nation, and your property is forfeited probably for support of the temple, is probably the idea. And so the Israelites do assemble in Jerusalem, verse 9 and following. Verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God at the temple, trembling because of this matter, one, and trembling, number two, because of the heavy rain. So they assemble here at this place, trembling for these two reasons. The matter that was before them was serious. It was difficult. And they feared the judgment of God. They also faced the harsh elements. This is the month Kislev, November to December. So by the 20th, they're in our setting, early December. doesn't snow very often in Israel. It's down to the 50s in Jerusalem, sometimes to the 40s. Occasionally, on rare, rare occasion, there might be a bit of snow. But what they're in here is torrential downpour in the rainy season. And they are miserable. Their spirits are darkened by the pending breakup of their families and the heavy atmosphere and pounding rain matches their internal gloom. And at that point, Ezra speaks, verse 10, He stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now this point has been seen, Ezra has seen it, Others have seen it. Now this charge is made official. You have broken faith. There's our word again from verse 2. Foreign again, not speaking merely of ethnicity, but of their worship of false gods. He calls the people to repent in verse 11. And now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Calling them to repent calling them to do the will of God. Is Ezra the scribe calling God's people to do His will? This is how he calls them to do His will. 
again, I think, support. He's not leading them to do a small bad thing to avoid a big bad thing. He's calling them in this setting to do what is right. Verse 12, the people agree with Ezra. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. There's a calling out from the assembly, acknowledging they're wrong. But there is also an appeal that is made. Verse 13, But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain, and we cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. There's a lot of us here It's not going to work for us to get this all figured out as we stand here in this pouring rain. And this is a complicated issue that will take time. It's sensitive. And so the appeal is made for a different gathering. In fact, verse 14 lays out the suggestion. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. They're saying, let our community leaders who know us in our villages and towns come with us to Jerusalem. They know who we are. They know the situation. And may we be then in that way faithfully represented and may faithful, fair investigation take place. There's opposition to this plan, verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikva, oppose this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. A lot of debate as to what that means, and we're not even given why they object. Is it too lenient or is it too harsh? We don't know just that the names are recorded, and I guess we're reminded that virtually every plan of God's people that they've ever made, somebody doesn't agree. But they don't agree. They say this isn't the right way, just to record that, whatever that was. But the majority do agree with the plan, and they execute the plan. Verse 16, Then the returned exiles did so. As were the priests selected men, heads of fathers' houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women, who had violated the covenant with God, who had proven unfaithful to Him in this particular way, is the idea. It's a three-month investigation, and the culprits are carefully identified. The findings are brought out in verse 18. Now, just remember this. We're reading this all these years later. The names are listed for us. There's learning in that. Now, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eliezer, Jerob and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jehu, the son of Jozadak and his brothers. Jeshua was the high priest who came with the first wave of returning exiles. Assuming he's the same name, it would indicate that this failure had reached the leaders of the nation. Indeed, they are classified here in verse 18 as the priests. 
They, verse 19, pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. They, setting the example of how to obey God's law, had broken faith with God in this matter. They repent of their sin, and they offer sacrifice to God to atone for their sin. We would assume that that's a pattern then that is set up for the others. Verse 20, of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zabadiah, of the sons of Harim, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Isaiah, of the sons of Pasher, Elioni, Messiah, again, another by that name, Ishmael, Nathanel, Jazabad, and Elishah. These priests had failed God in this way, and they are listed. We then see a second category, the larger category, verse 23, of the Levites. The Levites who had failed in this way. Jazabad, Shimai, Keliah, that is Kalita, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers among the Levites, Eliashib. Of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And then are listed the Israelites, here in distinction from the priests and the Levites. The sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Mijamin, Eliezer, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. Of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad and Aziza of the sons of Bebai were Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Malak, Adiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pehath, Moab, Adna, Chelal, Beniah, Masiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, Manasseh, of the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Eliezer Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, anybody like to take my place here? Uh, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashem, Mataniah, Matatah, Zabad, Eliphelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh and Shimei of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amran, Uel, Beniah, Bediah, Chaluhi, Beniah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matanai, Jasua of the sons of Benui, Shimei, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Mechnad, Ebai, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebo, Jeiel, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women. And some of the women had even borne children, or a textual variant, and the wives and the children were dismissed. Why read these names? I, we don't have to, 
but they're in Scripture. And I think just the sense of them, though I'm probably butchered half of these names, just the sense of the list and the severity of this sin. Remember chapter 2? We did this once before, didn't we? In chapter 2, we read all of the people who had returned to Israel. And as we looked at that long list of individuals who were there in, in a sort of hall of fame, these are the ones who heard the call, who responded and went back. Now we have here in chapter 10, some might think, a hall of shame. Those who had broken faith with God are listed and if your name was in the first group in chapter 2, you celebrated. If your name is here, it's not celebration. It's a reminder to us in both of these lists of Ezra that we are all developing a reputation and that as we live, so it is recorded by God. But thankfully, I don't think this is ultimately a hall of shame. Ultimately, their names are singled out as sinners, but they are also here singled out as the repentant. They are not Israelites who had been banished from Israel. These are Israelites whose sacrifices God has accepted. When we take that thought and we think of, is our name written in the Lamb's book of life? There's a day when we find our name as those who have made the journey from this life in faithfulness to meet with God. But on that list, every name that's there in the Lamb's book of life is the name of a repentant sinner. Nobody is in the Lamb's book of life because of what we have done. Because of how good we are. We're there like these people as those who have sinned but have repented. People where God's Word and His call on our life has collided with everything that we are and everything that we think, and we found ourselves often violating and breaking that law and sinning against God. But we come, as we have sung today, and as these songs have prepared us to think of this truth, we come as those who repent of sin. The only people whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Not the good people. Not the people who have earned it. The people who have said, this is what God's Word says. I have broken that law. And I repent and seek His forgiveness. This is not a lovely chapter of the Bible. It is in many respects an ugly, gloomy, depressing account you don't pick this for December 28th, believe me, unless you work through books. But there is light that emerges from these very Israelites. Last week we noted repeatedly their true repentance and hard obedience saved the messianic line from elimination. Satan must have shrieked with glee over every marriage contracted in the land because it erased a family from the Abrahamic line. At least it had that potential. But by turning from their sin, these Israelites preserved the Messianic line. 
Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, ultimately to Christ. They stand between David and Jesus. They stand between David and his greater son who fulfills the sacrificial system represented in this chapter by the giving of a lamb. A substitutionary sacrifice. A lamb, a ram here dying in the place of those who had broken faith with God. What does this have to do with us? You too. I too. I'm a sinner. Our names are listed as those who have broken faith with God. Every one of us. If you think that's not true of me, you don't know me, you don't know how good I am, you don't know how evil you are to even be having that fight in your head right now. We do break the law of God. We admit it. We come to this place to say, I'm a lawbreaker. But by God's grace, there's a sacrifice. There was a ram for these priests and Levites and these Israelites. There was a ram of sacrifice that would pay the cost of sin. That wasn't going to fulfill anything long term. But it pointed forward to David's greater son who would lay down his own life and die in the place of his people. Die for sinners to bear the weight of sin and to bear the penalty of sin. What's necessary, and perhaps for you uniquely today, is to come to the place where you say, I am wrong. I have sinned against God, and like the prayers of confession here in Ezra 9 and 10, you offer no excuses. You don't point the finger to someone else who pushed you to do it. You accept before God, I have sinned. I am wrong, and I need God's forgiveness. That forgiveness is the good news, the reason that we gather. Some people say that conversations like this and churches that talk about sin are just simply trying to control people. What we're trying to do is to say there's forgiveness, that there's no forgiveness for sins you don't repent of. Ultimately, if you cling to your sin and cling to your wrong and stand in your own merits, you'll stand before God guilty. You'll not be on the list in the Lamb's book of life of the repentant. You'll be on the list of the condemned who are removed from the presence of God because you want to stand in your own righteousness, making your own excuses. This is what we see here. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, who have trusted His death, His death in our place and His resurrection power, we are reminded as those believers that hope is often hard hope. For us, that hope takes on the task of not divorcing our wives. That hope takes on the task, and unlike the Israelites, of putting away pagan wives in the promised land, on a larger scale, the lordship of Jesus Christ collides with everything in our lives, a truth very much felt in the area of sexuality and marriage. This is one place that it collides. According to God's Word, as He instructs us, as Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, 
Sex is to be restricted to the bond of marriage. That's our call. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus said, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In this context, he says that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart, and it's serious. Now we see how small we are. We see how needy we are of his forgiveness. Not only in this area does it collide with us, but it collides in this area as well. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. There's a period at the end of that sentence. But if her husband dies... She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. This reflects what a number of other New Testament passages would indicate. I use just this verse, only in the Lord. There is a restriction of marriage for believers to other believers. That limits the field exponentially. We are to marry those who are in the Lord, who know Christ as Savior, who submit to the same Lord. That collides with life. The Bible teaches marital permanence until death parts us. For those who sinned against God by marrying an unbeliever or who become a believer after they are married. We have this word of instruction. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. We say, well, in some respects, that's kind of the opposite of what's happening in Nehemiah 9 and 10, which is why we have to build the bridge and understand the distinct context. Here, the calling upon us in our day and situation where God's Word collides with our world in the area of marriage, it may mean that I need to remain married to someone who has radically different purposes than I do. But to say from Nehemiah 9 and 10, I should divorce my unbelieving husband or my unbelieving wife, is to break the law of God and to prove unfaithful. Whether it's sexuality and marriage or any other area of our lives, we must learn to calibrate our lives to God's Word and to Christ's rule. And that's what I think comes from this. Here are people doing a hard thing. An excruciatingly difficult thing because in the light of the Word of God, they see that they must. Sometimes it's such a very difficult undertaking, but in the end, as the Lordship of Jesus Christ collides with everything in our lives, and as we learn to respond in repentant faith, we come to experience the joys of fidelity to God in this waking world. What is it for you? Where are you today? What is the sin that separates you from God, and do you know that sin has been dealt with biblically? Have you come to trust in the provision of Jesus Christ? And do you come as a believer in repentant hope? No matter what difficulty that word places upon your life, it is only safe and right 
and ultimately satisfying to obey what God has said. Starting with repentance to say, I have broken your law. Seeking his forgiveness based on the work of Christ and then moving forward into this world doing whatever God has called us to do. This is the orientation that we take from this passage. And I want my name to be among the repentant. I long for my name in eternity to be stated as one of the sinners saved by grace. Do you? Do you have confidence that that's your future? You can have that confidence as you come to embrace the plan that God has laid out for you. Father, I pray to that end that in the lives of those who know not Christ the Savior that they would come to that light and recognize how their sin separates them from their very hope. For those of us who know you, we thank you for this encouragement, for this rebuke, for this direction in our lives. And pray that you would lead us from here. There is undoubtedly all of us on some level, and perhaps some on a very unique level, that are fighting with temptation and sin. I plead that they would not permit this word to go in one ear and out the other and walk away unchanged. But I pray that for each one of us we would face ourselves and face our failings and that we would leave this place rejoicing with glad hearts to identify with the repentant, forgiven, hope-filled followers of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. As with every message from God's Word, there's a need to respond privately, personally, and 